Was H.P. Lovecraft into black magic? And how did that have an effect on modern occultism? We'll talk about that tonight with our guest, John Stedman. We'll also get into some other paranormal topics as well here on Spooky South Coast episode, uh, whoa, what is it? Uh, 381. For, 381? No, 481, man. 481. Episode 481 of Spooky South Coast starts right now. South Coast. Tim Weisberg here, along with the silent assassin Matt Costa, science advisor Matt Moniz, and Stephanie Burke, both off tonight. They have holiday things going on, so Matt Costa and myself will be steering the spooky ship with you tonight here on WBSM and also broadcasting live on YouTube and on the Spooky South Coast Android app, as well as being rebroadcast on the Dark Matter Radio Network. So thank you to you, however you tune in and listen to the show, or maybe watch the show each week. And as I mentioned uh, in the cold open there, we have John Stedman as our guest. He'll be joining us in just a bit to talk about H.P. Lovecraft. Uh, He has a new book out called H.P. Lovecraft and the Black Magical Tradition, The Master of Horror's Influence on Modern Occultism. We'll talk about that, and we'll really get into Lovecraft as a person, and we'll get into... Uh, the influence that he has had. But before we do that, let's talk about something that's a little bit more uh, modern, uh, something that came out this week. And like the work of Lovecraft, I think this story is a complete work of fiction. We tweeted it out on the Spooky South Coast Twitter feed. If you don't follow us at Spooky SC, I recommend it because we have stories all week long that, that Matt Costa and Chris Balzano post up and uh, Matt, you know that we, we, we got you some help. We got we got you an intern for, for the Paranormal News. Right, right. Starting next week, we will have the debut of our Paranormal News correspondent, Melody Knapp. So she'll be... Melody is very excited to be contributing to the show, and she'll be helping out with finding some spooky stories and some weird stories. And so next week, the Week in Weird will return, and it's all new format. Right. After, I mean, um, that was kind of a, one of our uh, really popular... Um, segments that we used to do that we, I don't, I don't know, I kind of uh, fell by the wayside, I guess. Yeah, I mean, there's there's some work that goes into it, and we just didn't feel like doing the work. So we pawned it off on, <laughs> right. on Melody. So she'll help right. us out, and she'll, she'll it's be... It's going to be great. It's going to be great. It should be. It's, it's going to be huge. But huge. Uh, we will do it. So good. The best news. The best week and weird ever, which we have to say that because there's another week and weird now. Because the new Kirks couldn't come up with a different name. Right. <laughs> we could come up with another. Like, name. oh, we didn't know. Like, it's not like Wicked Weird is like that great. I don't know. I thought it was awesome. Well, that's because you have like a alliteration fetish. I do have an alliteration <laughs> fetish, no doubt. Uh, I strongly support that notion. I strongly support <laughs> right there. Uh, but uh, no, but we're we're pretty excited to to have Melody join us as our paranormal news correspondent. That will debut next week. Uh, but if you do follow along with the stories, you might have seen this one already. This comes from a website called LGBTQNation.com. 
And now we have to be careful now when we talk about news stories that seem ridiculous because there are a lot of fake news sites out there now. But from everything I could tell on this, Matt, it looks like it was it's a legitimate page. I don't know how legitimate right. the, the, the story is, but it looks like this is an actual site, not, not some kind of you know joke news site. Right. I mean, uh, sometimes you can kind of tell. Sometimes they put like a little disclosure at the bottom. Right. If you start looking at other the other articles on the website and you see some really outrageous things, like maybe like, I don't know, Bigfoot high heels found in uh, Saskatchewan or something. But... Um, it's not. That's not only uh, the only outlet that posted that story as well. It was. It was on a number of different uh, websites out there. Going to all different. Uh, you know, was it was it all being credited back to the site, or was it you know their own writers? Um, I believe it was all going back to that. Uh, what was it? The SF. Uh, what was it? SF. Uh, now the link we have is the link we have is to lgbtqnation.com. That's the link that we tweeted out. So, well, anyway, bottom line is we we think the story is legitimate at least in terms of where it's coming from. Uh, oh, you're th- you're talking about the website for the actual organization, right? Yeah. Right. Well, there's there's a website for this organization called the Spiritual Science Research Foundation. Now, Matt, you said that you know just looking at the site, you get the feeling that this is kind of some weird cult type thing. It, it seems a little like, um, yeah, un- I don't know, kind of sketchy. Ish. Seems weird. It seems like they're really trying to like recruit people into their organization, whatever organization that is, whatever motives they have. So that you know raises a red flag to begin with. But mm-hmm. so the Spiritual Science Research Foundation, which claims to be a world leader in spiritual research, even though you know we've never heard of them, they have a new article posted up called "Symptoms of Ghost Affecting or Possessing a Person." And according to the story, 85% of gay people are actually just possessed by ghostly entities. The article says that, quote, the main reason behind the gay orientation of some men is that they are possessed by female ghosts. And it is the female ghost in them that is attracted to other men. And conversely, (laughs) it would be the same if it was a lesbian. So uh, the article says the ghost's consciousness overpowers the person's normal behavior to produce the homosexual attraction. Spiritual research has shown that the cause for homosexual preferences lie predominantly in the spiritual realm. So they did give you a handy pie chart to explain that, you know, ghost possession is only 85% of why people are homosexual. I I love when they put, like, pie charts and stuff in there just to make it. I just like pie. (laughs) But uh, so 85% of the root causes of homosexuality, 85% is mainly ghosts, 10% is psychological, and 5% is physical. So uh, th- this article is uh, it's, it's pretty ridiculous. It's definitely a ridiculous concept. I mean, how, I'm not sure how, where you would come up with this. Well, that's the thing is if you're dealing with something that's spiritual, nobody's going to be looking for any kind of tangible proof. Mm-hmm. I mean, what's what's the end game? What why why would you? Uh, what's the motivation behind this? Just to push your agenda? All right, I, I have no. According to the the Spiritual Science Research Foundation, thirty percent of the world's mm-hmm. population is possessed by ghosts. So they're already saying that uh, you know thirty percent of the people out there need help. 
So maybe they're just trying like, to be like the... Like it can be cured. Well, that, that's maybe that's what they're trying to push. Maybe they're trying to push the agenda of, you know, we can be the ones to help you and you should come and join our flock mm-hmm. if... Uh, so, so here's here's some of the signs, by the way, if you think that you might be possessed by a ghost, according to the Spiritual Science Research Foundation. So there's the five senses. There's a foul taste in the mouth, uh, experience of eyes being pulled inside, irritation in the eyes as I'm rubbing my eyes. Mm-hmm. I say that. <laughs> Dryness of the lips, mouth, and throat. Uh, the ghosts, there's a sticky layer formed on the face and body of the affected person. Oily skin, rashes on the skin, and the eerie feeling of being touched. You'll also fear, feel a pinprick sensation, headaches and migraines, severe backache, body ache, and inability to move, and the experience of strangulation. strangulation. Uh, the ghosts enter and leave the body through any of the nine openings, the two eyes, the two nostrils, the two ears, the mouth, the, and then you know, the downstairs doors. Right. Uh, you know. Some of us have one. Some of us have two. Uh, the person may experience as if gas is going out of any of those openings, or one may experience a cough, yawning, burp, sneezing. So basically what they're doing is they're hedging their bets. Everything that people do could right. be a sign of ghost possession. Uh, so It's like, it's like the, uh, they went on WebMD and typed in <laughs> ghost possession. They typed in every symptom of everything. Right. And so if this is the case, if, if any of these things apply to you, you could be possessed by a ghost. And if you find yourself attracted to the same sex, then you're probably possessed right. by a ghost that's the opposite gender of you. Mm-hmm. So I don't, you know, this this sounds like all of a sudden Mike Pence decided he was going to become a paranormal researcher. <laughs> <laughs> that's what it sounds like to me because right. uh, I'm just, I'm having a hard time believing. Right. I, I, was, uh, I was actually... More upset, um, well, maybe not more upset, but that they refer to that organization as a paranormal uh, resort research organization. Well, they they were they like would you qualify um, like a spiritual group like that as paranormal? I think that they I think that it's because the Spiritual Science Research Foundation is referring to themselves as that, and so the news outlets are kind of okay. just picking up on that as being like here's how they describe themselves and it's up to you to decide if you want to mm-hmm. look at them in, in that light because this this particular website uh refers to them as a gaggle of paranormal researchers it's kind of a gag is a lot isn't it <laughs> well it is if you're if you're a gay ghost. dealing with a gay ghost <laughs> yeah i guess i guess there's a little gaggle going on but uh <laughs> well i think that you know, you have to. You can't have a gaggle reflex hmm. if you want to be. <laughs> so we're going down dangerous territory here. Right. Uh, right now, they're they're higher ups at the station. Are like, move so, on. So this this organization is actually referring to themselves. They're lumping them in the paranormal category. That's, that's category? what I think is happening. So, if it's that simple, then why can't people just get exorcised of said ghost? And do these do these ghostly possessions stay forever? Or do they move on to another host, and then all of a sudden you stop being gay? Like this is just (laughs) just ridiculous, right? They just burn some sage and just here, whatever. God forbid that it's just any any other explanation except for ghosts. You know, any uh, any of the other fifteen percent. I I have have to say that's probably the last thing I would um, blame it on. (laughs) Right. If you if you had to blame, which is not. I mean, I blame everything on ghosts, really. Mm. 
because it's a convenient excuse for a lot of things, and I can get away with it because people don't know about ghosts, and I do. So when something goes wrong, I can be like, oh, yeah, yeah, that was a ghost. Yeah, I mean, that's. I guess that's what Which they, is usually, it's a fart. That's what I'm usually <laughs> blaming on, on a ghost. That's what that was. That's the right. gas escaping right. the body. Right. That could be the ghost unpossessing me. So also, uh, <laughs> on the LGBTQNation.com website, uh, it's the story is filed under uh, such categories as demonic possession, ghost story, spiritual possession, spiritual scientific research foundation, and then the other tag, reasons why you're gay. <laughs> I think we can eliminate this as being one of those reasons. Right. Uh, you know, no offense, spiritual science research foundation, but you're full of crap. Highly unlike you. But it will, uh, you know, when we shared the story and a lot of people were uh, commenting on the story when we put it up on social media saying, you know, why are you sharing this? This is ridiculous. Thinking that it was our opinion. Right. That we it was don't, our we don't believe it. No, we just share the stories with you. That's right. what we're doing. Just to generate discussion, and it's something that's kind of, uh, it's ridiculous. It's we're trying to make you aware that the story is out there and trying to get your response to it. That's that's the idea behind these news stories that we share. And that's all we're, that's all the, the show is about anyway, is fostering discussion about topics in the world of the paranormal. And that brings me to another thing that I wanted to address this week, just very quickly. But uh, it seems like this week we've been inundated with trolls on some of our YouTube videos. Right, and not the trolls that we want. Right, not like the trolls we want... that we can do a whole show about. Right. <laughs> not trolls from, like, Bridgewater Triangle. Or or trolls that hang out with John Tenney. You know, we're talking, like, internet trolls. Mm-hmm. And uh, they've decided to start uh, commenting under our videos. And we say thank you. Thank you for watching. Thank right. you for taking the time to comment. Please continue to do so. <laughs> Really, I love I love bad news. I love uh, I love hate mail. Well, it, and that's the thing is you can't you can't send us effective hate mail or or troll us effectively without paying attention to what it is that we're talking about. Mm-hmm. So if you want to give us more eyes and more ears, that's cool. You know, we ask everybody to subscribe to our YouTube channel. We right. ask everybody to subscribe to the podcasts. We ask everybody to follow us on social media. So if you want to do so for the purpose of trolling us, whatever. It's all good because somewhere along the way you're going to pick up on some of the things that we're talking about. And you're going to keep the discussion going. See, the the thing is about trolls is they want to troll you for having your opinion. And they want to get you incited into like a war of words about it. But we're not here to have an opinion. We do. We have opinions. We share them sometimes. But we're here to kind of just foster that discussion. So I'm pretty sure it's just uh, uh, Kyle's dad from South Park. (laughs) I don't know if you've seen uh, any of this season. But apparently apparently his dad is like a a world-famous troll that has America on the brink of war with Denmark. Oh, all right. So, so So you haven't seen the member berries yet? No, no. I see. I haven't been watching it. I just will flip through the channels and happen upon it. Yeah. And so I don't really follow everything storyline wise. I probably haven't watched. I'll, I'll admit that I haven't watched South Park in probably ten years. All right. So it's on, during the it's, news break. We're going to look up, up there with berries. The Simpsons, where it's like I like it, but I haven't kept up. On it. Oh, I watch The Simpsons yeah. every week still, and then I complain about how it isn't like it used to be. <laughs> hey, the writing just isn't as strong sometimes, but mm-hmm. uh, you know. 
Speaking of writing, tonight we'll be talking about H.P. Lovecraft, and we'll be doing so in just a few moments with our guest, John Stedman. And you can call in at any point during the night with your thoughts on the subject at 508-996-0500-877-996-1420. Those are the numbers if you want to call in directly. You can also tweet us at SpookySC or just use the hashtag SpookyLive. That's really the best way to reach out to us during the show is using the hashtag SpookyLive or just jumping right into the chat room on our YouTube channel. If you go to YouTube.com slash user slash SpookySouthCoast or just go to SpookySouthCoast.com. That's the easiest way. Either way. You can get right to the chat room, right to the video feed, and you can also get it right on the Spooky South Coast Android app. And we are getting ever closer to right. having the Step by step. The inch by app. inch. <laughs> it's Niagara Falls. And oh, then, uh, and i uh, got to say hi to to our, our plant guest tonight. We, we have a plant in the audience. Who's that? Oh. Literally our plant. <laughs> you put it up on the screen. We do. So, that's... Uh, right. Do we, do we I, don't know, I don't even know what kind of plant that is. Hostess, maybe? It's real, though, because they put water in it. Hmm. Because the water gets everywhere. <laughs> but that's in place of uh, Stephanie Burke tonight. So, or, or Matt Moniz. Whichever one. Yeah, whoever you want to pretend that it is. <laughs> It's almost as cold as Stephanie would be in here. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> why don't we just call it Cthulhu for tonight? That right. might that might be appropriate. So uh, we will get our, our guest, John, Matt's going to get our guest, John Stedman, on the line with us. And again, if you want to call in, 508-996-0500-877-996-1420. Those are the numbers to share in the discussion tonight as we talk about H.P. Lovecraft. And I think a lot of the folks who are into this show and are into the topics that we discuss here when you're looking for fictional writing you're looking for something similar to what you would find from Howard Phillips Lovecraft and we've talked about him here on the show before of course uh, Carl Johnson who is a frequent guest on the program and a good friend of the show is one of the foremost Lovecraft experts in the area and he takes part in the celebrations every year in Providence. So we have covered it in the past, but I'm really interested in getting into tonight's discussion with John Sedman as we talk about not only Lovecraft, but we talk about the influence that he's had in occultism that has followed. Because we've never really gone beyond the man himself and the stories that he crafted and really talked about the lasting impact and what it means overall. So tonight, we can really get into a lot of that with our guest, and uh, he actually is joining us on the line right now. John L. Stedman is a scholar of both H.P. Lovecraft and Western occultism, and has been a magical practitioner for over 30 years, working with various covens and small groups of initiates. He has a Bachelor of Arts from Michigan State University, a Master of Arts from the University of Virginia, and a Master of Business Administration from the University of Wisconsin. In addition to his academic credentials, uh, he also holds a number of degrees uh, in some other areas that will actually allow him to talk about and explain for us. And now joining us on the line, we have John Stedman. Good evening, John. How are you? I'm wonderful. How are you guys doing? Oh, we are doing spooktacular. And, uh, spooktacular. We... I love that. <laughs> it's copyrighted. So every year when okay, those... I'll, I'll watch it and not use it too much, or I'll send money to somebody you no, tell me to send it. No, no. You have our permission. It's just when the Old Navy starts putting out those Halloween t-shirts, that's when we get angry. Oh, yeah. Ripping us off. Ripping off yeah. our ideas. 
Well, I mean, and that's really, I think, when talking about H.P. Lovecraft, you want to talk about ideas that have become part of the fabric of the topics that we cover here on shows like Spooky South Coast. Lovecraft has given so much to the fabric of the things that we talk about and that we explore. Yeah, that's true enough. It It's almost like, though, when... Obviously, you know, you, you realize that he's dealing in works of fiction, and he's, he's a storyteller, and he's a, a master storyteller. But a lot of the things that he tells stories about have kind of worked their way into what has become the collective psyche of people, and, and he's contributed to what is kind of the collective fears of folks as well. Yeah, the interesting thing about Lovecraft, you know, I sometimes jokingly tell people that he should actually be nominated for the Nobel Prize in Literature, but he's actually had a very vast influence on our culture when you think about it. I mean, it's really kind of incredible. I mean, not only has he had an extreme influence on fantasy and horror fiction, of course, but uh, if you look at some of the other things that he does, he's actually uh, a scholar named Jason Colavito, uh, Colavito, rather, uh, wrote a book where he claims that actually Lovecraft's influence can be traced back to the beginnings of the alien astronaut theory and the UFO phenomenon. And he does a very good job in his book of making that kind of connection. But uh, in addition to that, and I won't even mention the popular cultural influences, of course. You know, they're still with us today. But uh, he created a whole genre of literature, the Cthulhu mythos fiction, and that's still going strong today. I can't think of any fantasy writer other than C.S. Lewis or uh, Tolkien who's done that. Lovecraft's done a lot better. And uh, in addition to that, there's a guy named uh, Graham Harmon, who's actually a professor in Cairo, Egypt, and he wrote a book called Weird Realism, Lovecraft and Philosophy, and he argues that Lovecraft actually has had an important contribution in philosophical and Western philosophy. He's actually comparable to Martin Heidegger, Herschel and Picasso, and a, he's a pivotal figure in uh, ontology, which is a stu- study of reality, reality and existence. And uh, so if you put all those things together, uh, oh, and of course, S.T. Josie's uh, contention that Lovecraft's cosmicism is actually a viable literary theme, uh, and it's actually equivalent to any other kind of viable literary theme. So when you put all those things together, I mean, that's actually quite a, a vast uh, a vast influence on Western culture in general. And, and what's funny is for a guy who was able to contribute so much and even just even if you just looked at it from a pop culture aspect, even if you didn't get into some of these deeper connections that he was able to make and you just look at it on the surface of a pop culture thing. So you want to compare him to say, you know, today we would probably compare him to somebody like Stephen King and the way that he has reached out in, in pop culture and become part of our, our modern mythology and part of our modern storytelling. Lovecraft never experienced any of that in his life. He didn't live in a big house like Stephen King did. He doesn't have an, he didn't have a media empire. This is a guy who, you know, when he passed away, he passed away in relative poverty and, and was really an unknown author at the time of his death. Yeah, he was. Uh, he considered himself a failure when he died. Uh, he was only able to get his stuff published in uh, Weird Tales magazines and other magazines, and uh, he never got a hardcover book print in his lifetime. And he just thought, you know, that he uh, his contribution was very slim to society. But the thing about Lovecraft was, despite uh, the things you hear about him, you know, a lot of his racist ideas have given him kind of bad press and stuff. But he was a very lovable guy, and he had real strong friends. And one of his friends, August Derleth, of course, uh, founded the Arkham House Publishing Company just mainly to get Lovecraft into hardcover print and to keep his reputation alive. 
And he had friends who would do that for him. A lot of the friends would borrow his themes and write other stories about him. So they kind of saved his reputation and kept him before the public eye. But uh, he uh, probably, he might have actually uh, descended into obscurity if it wasn't for those kind of things. But uh, he did actually live in a big house when he first started out, when he was a young person. His father was very rich. When his mother's marriage didn't work out, she brought him back to the homestead in Providence, Rhode Island. And he was living pretty well then. But then after some uh, business uh, fluctuations and stuff, they lost that house. And then after that, he was more or less living in poverty, living, living by his wits, so to speak. But, I mean, you look at somebody like Lovecraft and, and some of the, the things that he chose to write about and, and some of the ideas that would spring up in his imagination, and you've you got to think to yourself, you know, this is probably somebody that didn't have a, a regular, normal, well-adjusted upbringing. And if you look into his life and his history a little bit, he did have a lot of things uh, that were working against him even from a young age. Oh, yeah. Yeah, he had all sorts of psychological problems. He, um, a lot of them would call uh, psychosomatic issues right now, but he, uh, he never finished high school. He dropped out of high school due to all sorts of nervous ailments and things like that, and he, and he actually was always embarrassed about that, too. He probably would have, if he'd gone on to college, he probably would have ended up as uh, probably a high school uh, science teacher or something because he was always interested in science. And so it's debatable where he would even get these stories at all, you know. So I'm, I'm pretty happy the way things turned out the way they did, you know. But he had a lot of problems that kind of worked against him. But one thing that I like about him is his fiction is very, very sophisticated. I mean, you put him in the same category as Stephen King, but when you actually look at his ideas and what he accomplished in his fiction, it's like infinite light years away from Stephen King. I mean, Stephen King right. still, through all of his whole life, he's dealing with things like vampires and, uh, you know, aliens from outer space and things like that. And, and it's the very unsophisticated stuff, the kind of stuff they were dealing with in, in Weird Tales magazine. But Lovecraft's entities are thoroughly sophisticated and in alignment with uh, modern quantum physics theories right now, something you can't make a claim about with Stephen King. Right. Well, when talking about his connection with with uh, with quantum physics, that's a very interesting uh, avenue when it comes to Lovecraft and his and his work. What is the connection there between what he was writing about and and some of these themes that he was focusing on, and our current understanding of of what we think quantum physics could be? Yeah. Well, uh, Lovecraft, first of all, is up on all the modern scientific uh, uh, modern scientific things, and around the time when Lovecraft was writing. Uh, quantum physics was just getting started, you know, so uh, he was at the bottom part, you know, Einstein's uh, theory of relativity and his general theory of relativity. He, he was uh, actually articulating that. And Lovecraft read some of those early quantum physics. You know, he was very familiar with people like Niels Bohr and Heisenberg. Heisenberg, of course, is associated with Heisenberg on certain principles. And the, the views that these people had was that reality was kind of multidimensional. And because the particles, of course, exhibit wave and, and mass functions. And Einstein's theory of relativity, of course, is actually just means energy is equal to mass, which is, was kind of a revolutionary idea. And Lovecraft studied all that stuff. And what's interesting is Lovecraft was considered himself a materialist, a mechanist materialist, which doesn't contradict quantum physics, by the way, because quantum physics applies to the subatomic level, and Newtonian physics applies to uh, the reality that we're in right now. So there wasn't any kind of contra uh, conflict between the two beliefs, you know. But what's interesting about Lovecraft is he brought his scientific concepts into his fiction. And uh, 
So as entities aren't just monsters, you know, like you read like Stephen King and you get like ghosts or vampires or whatever. Or today, if you read Cthulhu fiction, uh, these uh, entities are, are pictured kind of like as monsters. You know, like if you think of Cthulhu, he's a gigantic thing, looks kind of like half human, half dragon with wings out the back and claws. And it's a very tangible monster-like creature, like a Godzilla or something. But Lovecraft's concept of these entities, if you read his stories, isn't like that at all. You know, and so uh, nothing's been done like that before uh, Lovecraft, certainly, but it's not really being done today either. I would argue that his fictional monsters and his themes are still revolutionary, and nobody's come quite close to getting that type of an entity. Well, I, I think it's very interesting because you think it would be a dichotomy to be a materialist and deal in topics that can be very metaphysical in nature. And, and a lot of the way, you know, the lens that we look at a lot of these things through today uh, depend a great deal on belief. But he was a guy who was very well grounded in, you know, matter being the, the ultimate substance of all and everything is physical. And it's almost like it's 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 a much stronger conviction of belief to feel that way and to still be willing to believe in the ideas that he put forth in some of his fiction. Yeah, well, he was. There. I think that's where the power of his fiction comes from, you know, because he always was an atheist. He was an atheist. He didn't believe in gods and goddesses or in any kind of supernatural entities. And he called himself a mechanic, a mechanist, a materialist. He just meant by that that nothing exists apart from man, that you can actually explain everything in existence and experience in reference to the laws of material subject. And, he, and, of course, he was an atheist, you know. But the thing about Lovecraft, that was a light side of Lovecraft, I like to call it. There was also a dark side to Lovecraft. He had these really vivid dreams, and he saw all sorts of interesting things in those dreams, and those dreams kind of frightened him, and he was drawn to weird themes like that. And so he, when he started actually writing fiction, he brought in not only the dark side, but the light side, too. And it was a dichotomy that was actually inside of Lovecraft himself. And I would argue it was never reconciled. And that's why his stuff is so powerful, you know, because he's writing about things that on one level he can actually accept them as being supplements to reality, and so he could believe in them to a certain extent. And then on the other, he couldn't believe in it because he was an atheist. And so you've got this kind of Jekyll and Hyde, but it's not like... Uh, tangible Jekyll and Hyde where one moment you're Jekyll, one moment you're Hyde, but you're both at once all the time. And I think it creates like a tension in this work, and it's like a tension that we all have. Like, I'm a magical practitioner, right? Now, that means I'll go into a magical circle, and I'll call up extraterrestrial entities, right? But there's always a part of me that's also an atheist, and I kind of look at, can stand out from that image of me doing that and say, this is ridiculous. I mean, I'm out here burning uh, candles and waving wands and stuff. It's a completely silly thing for a grown, rational human being to do, but yet I do it. You know, so I think all of us have that kind of dichotomy in us. And I think that's why Lovecraft is so powerful, because we can identify with that when we read that fiction. Well, and, and I certainly in the next hour, I want to get more into your uh, pract practice and pra practicing of magic and, and some of the, the work that you do there. And I all want, you know, Go back for a minute, though, on what you said about Lovecraft being an atheist. And I think that, you know, a lot of people know him for the Cthulhu mythos, and they know him for creating his own system of, of gods and goddesses. And do you feel like that that was uh, something that he was able to do because of his atheism, that he wasn't really tied down to the way that people would normally look at the subject of God and, and any type of creationism, because he wasn't oh, yeah, a believer of that. Oh, yeah, a good way to look at it. I think he felt himself totally free with regard to that, because his entities are certainly not 
conventional entities, you'll notice that most religious systems, they have very human-centric entities, you know. In other words, they create their gods in their own images. And that's, you can see that in the Christian religion. I mean, you can't, there's not, in, in the Christian religion, they, when you think of God, you think of like a white, white-haired guy with a beard in profile, and then Jesus, of course, is a human being, human-centric. So, uh, when you kind of visualize gods and goddesses, you visualize this in human terms because you can't really comprehend what they are because uh, you're human, you know, you can't see beyond yourself. And the thing is, Lovecraft could see behind himself. He didn't believe in anthropomorphic gods at all. And so I, I think you're right about that. I think it gave him a certain amount of freedom. But what I liked was that he was able to actually uh, not give up or not be untrue to his uh, his atheistic beliefs and his materialism by creating gods they are quantum beings, in essence. You know, so uh, it's a really fascinating uh, topic. I don't know if I can even cover it all fully in like an hour or so. Well, is it is it possible, though, that there was also some level of subversiveness in the gods that he created? Because it's almost like if, if you're looking at his gods that he created and saying, well, this, you know, the idea of this is ridiculous, it's kind of also reflective of the way that he might have felt about the you know the the human centric gods that other people believed in that maybe maybe it was kind of a a little bit of a sub, subconscious commentary on the fact that it's kind of ridiculous to believe in any of these things. Yeah, some people claim that he was doing satire. You know, they'll read like the Dunwich Horror and they'll see a parody like you've got uh, uh, Lavinia Waitley, you know, giving birth to an, uh, you know Yog Sothoth's uh, child, and then they have like twins. And you could argue that's kind of like a parody of the the Virgin Mary's uh, giving birth to Christ. And then you could view Wilbur Waitley as being like a Christ symbol. And there are a lot of people that actually make those kind of connections. But when you actually study Lovecraft real closely, especially his letters, he was not really a satirist at all. And I think a lot of times people see that, that stuff in his fiction, and then they kind of project it in themselves. But I don't think Lovecraft put it in there. Like his friend August Derleth was a Catholic. And he kept seeing, like, the struggle between uh, the great old ones and humans. And he, he actually postulated a whole, a whole uh, race of elder gods who were the good gods. And then the great old ones were the bad gods. And so he saw, like, a standard good versus evil dichotomy. And he saw that as being in alignment with good versus evil in the Christian religion as well. Like, the great old ones are evil. And the... Uh, the elder ones are good, and they're helping mankind to become good. So he kind of projected that into it, too. So you can go either way. You can project either satire against conventional religion, or you could project as being actually a subtle way of celebrating conventional religion, too. And the thing that I like so much about Lovecraft, he didn't go either way. I don't think he was interested in either one. I mean, he knew what his friend August Derlis was doing, but he didn't criticize or say you're wrong about that. He just let him go with it. You know, so I think Lovecraft was the kind of person that he was articulating his view of the cosmos and man's position in the cosmos, which was very uh, bad, by the way. I mean, it was a very minor, almost insignificant position in the cosmos. But I think he was projecting his real views of the cosmos, but he wasn't actually trying to uh, do what either August Durlis was doing or what somebody else was doing. So when you when you see Christianity in him, I think you bring it with you. And if you see, like where he's actually mocking Christianity, I think you bring that with you, too. But Lovecraft stands apart from that. Well, you know, when when 
talking about the great old ones and, and, and the forces and the beings that he uh, was referencing, were they entirely fictional or was he kind of basing this on some other, you know, hidden aspect of, of religion that might have been lost as we became monotheistic and as we became uh, essentially very, um, you know, uh, Christian, well, Christian-based? Well, argue that. Occultists argue that. I talk about that in my book a little bit. In the chap- second chapter, I talk about exactly what Lovecraft knew about magic and uh, and what he knew about it. And I go into his philosophy and his, his view, his world view. But then I start talking a little bit about the Necronomicrons. Uh, and there's been uh, several Necronomicrons. And I talk about the kind of fake Necronomicrons. And I talk about the Simon Necronomicron, which came out uh, in the 70s. And the thing is, a lot of these occultists like Simon, and we don't really know who Simon is. Some people speculate he's Peter Lavanda, who's a very good occult scholar, but there's no real proof one way or the other. But he, he's the first one that articulated the idea that Lovecraft's great old ones were actually Sumerian gods and goddesses. And um, what he's done, done in the book there, he, he actually shows some comparisons. Like, there's some names that are similar, like there's actually something called Kothalu, which is kind of similar to Thulu. There's an Azag Thoth. There's an Ishnigarab, which could be compared to Shabnigrath. And so he makes a very good case that Lovecraft was actually unconsciously in touch with these Sumerian entities. Now, you remember, Sumeria was uh, reached its apex in like around 3,000, 4,000 B.C. That was a long time ago, way, way before monotheistic religion came along. I think Moses went up on Mount Sinai in 1250. So that and that was in the old that was the Old Testament, you know. So back then God was like the God of Abraham. There was no Jesus at all. So you can see how old that was. And Simon used to claim that uh, he still claims, you know, in the Necronomicon and other books that Lovecraft actually was in an unconscious connection with these Sumerian entities. And a lot of other occultists have picked up on that. Uh, Anton LaVey picked up on it. Lavanda himself picked up on it. And um, and other people have done that. And there's really no proof of that at all. I mean, it just seems like uh, no matter what, you know, no matter how much of this was fictional and no matter how much of this was kind of the creation of his own mind, Lovecraft was able to tap into something that was very, very basic in people. You know, he could he could kind of tap into uh, the root psyche of some folks. And, and I know that, you know, he went through his own thing, uh, as you mentioned, with, you know, the, the stuff that he dealt with growing up and, and undergoing night terrors and having these vivid dreams and sleep paralysis and all that. But I think that it wasn't it's not just a matter of knowing what scares people because of what scares him but it's a matter of being able to kind of read into people and being able to kind of read into the collective consciousness of people to really know how to create these these characters and create these concepts that would stick in their mind and and remain terrifying to them even after they're done reading the stories yeah, you know, that's an interpretation some people can make that claim the thing that I love about Lovecraft is he's so above everything that he can take innumerable interpretations and it doesn't diminish him or change him at all. He just stands free. Like Shakespeare, you read Shakespeare, you can interpret him in like any number of different ways, but the the fact that Shakespeare stands kind of inviolate. And Lovecraft is like that too. But what's interesting about these entities, I would argue that they're fictional entities, at least as far as Lovecraft conceived them. But once he created them, they became a little bit more than that. Mm. Because... uh, they're like gigantic, I like to view them like, like gigantic batteries, 
where the, you call it the collective unconscious, you can call it that if you want. But there's a lot of energy that's being fed into those things right now. And a lot of it comes from the fictional compositions. It comes from those games that people play, video games. It comes from movies that people watch. And these things, I would argue, have taken on a reality of their own, and it kind of blurs the concept between fictional and reality, but they can be used as actual extraterrestrial entities because they're just big energy source. Now, you could argue that way about God, right? All the Christians across the world, all the different denominations, they pray to God, they believe in God. That just makes that battery that much more powerful, and if you've got a powerful uh, source of energy like that, you can tap that energy, and that's what magicians do, and that's what the uh, magicians that follow in the Lovecraftian tradition are doing. They're actually using his fictional entities as actual entities, and they can do that because they, to all intents and purposes, are real. Did you ever uh, read the Harry Potter books? I never did. I'm, I'm familiar with the stories. I wish my co-host Stephanie was here tonight because she's a, a Harry Potter encyclopedia. Um, but I, I personally never read them. Yes, uh, one of our co-hosts normally is a, is a psychic oh. medium. Yeah, but yeah, she's she's Stephanie off tonight. Burke, I think. Yep. Yeah. Well, in the Potter book, in the uh, last Potter book, uh, Harry Potter, just before the climax, he gets knocked into an alternate dimension. It looks like King's Cross Station in London, and he meets Albus Dumbledore. Now, Dumbledore was his mentor, and he died in the previous book. And they have a conversation, and you kind of get the impression that uh, it's kind of like Harry Potter trying to clarify the thoughts in his mind symbolically through talking to Dumbledore. But when they get done talking, Dumbledore gets ready to leave, and and Harry Potter says, well, just a minute, uh, sir, you know, uh, is this happening inside my head, or is this something real? And Dumbledore turns to him and said, well, of course it's happening inside your head. But does that mean that it's not real? I think that's a very important point. You know, things that you can create in your mind, you can also give them reality. And so they actually are real in a certain sense, too. So the line between fiction and reality is definitely very, very blurred. And I get that same... I. I, I, I try to stress that same point to people in paranormal research when dealing with ghosts that a lot of these spirits that we're out there chasing after are probably creations of our own mind but that doesn't mean that they're still not actually real and actually uh, interacting with us and with our environment and with our gear that we go out looking for them with because even though they did exist in our mind we created them with our minds we've kind of willed them into actual existence well some people would uh, claim that's where all the gods come from. That's where the Christian gods come from. Every single god we can conceive of is something that we create first. So we create God in our own images. And then over time, the thing becomes the actual source of energy. Now, there's some magical systems, like the voodoo religion, for instance, where what they do is this. Like, if you're a magical practitioner, or you might be an answer, and you die... Uh, you actually don't really die, but you exist in some form as a lower, which would be like an energy source. And then people, like, worship that or they use that. And then over time, that ancestor, that person, actually evolves into a real god. You know, so uh, uh, a lot of religions actually believe that. Uh, the thing that magicians are interested in is it doesn't really matter how you want to interpret them. Like in the old days, in the 1300s, 1400s, when you had these magical grimoires and magical practitioners who were calling up demons and stuff, they would always be using the power of God to do that. They'd be supplicating God. And they believed that those extraterrestrial entities were real ontologically existing entities. And then after the advent of psychoanalysis, 
in the 1900s, uh, a lot of magical practitioners viewed them as the way you're talking about. They're like not really existing, but they're actually symbols for the psychic powers or uh, subtle powers that humans have inside themselves. And so that would be the inner interpretation as opposed to the outer. And most magical practitioners actually hold a combination of the two. They believe that you actually initiate contact with the extraterrestrial entity through the inner channels, through your mind on the mental planes, and then the entity answers your call when you summon him, and that entity is actually existing in more subtle alternate dimensions. So that's a real entity, and then it's manifest in either the astral planes or in the physical plane. And so there's an inner-outer component most magical practitioners believe in. I'm not so sure about a lot of those interpretations. I'm, I'm actually evolving toward a more quantum physics view of what magic is, which we can talk about uh, elsewhere but did i actually answer that question did i get no, so off track no no absolutely and and we're going to get really in depth with this uh coming up in the next hour because in in just about four minutes we have to take a break from the network news yeah, you, to- you told me about that when we come back I'll on the just... other side though we can really really dig into some of the stuff and i, I want to get into the idea and the concept of magic and kind of explain for people what it is that we're talking about you know when we're when we're discussing this because there is a there is a power out there that that can be harnessed and it can be used for different purposes and so we are going and I know that there's some listeners out there that listen to the show that will always tell us that we should keep things in the positive and we should only talk about you know working in the light because if you put out any kind of uh, discussion about the darker side of things it don't it only draws it in and it only gives it more power but I think tonight we're going to be exploring this uh, going all over the place with it and, and I love that because yeah. that's that's how we learn is by discussing these things yeah well I, I'd like to clarify the whole dark versus uh, light the whole black versus white magic after the little break so you want me just to hold my horses for about uh, five minutes or so oh we can absolutely do that because uh, I think uh, I feel like we'd have to cut you off on on giving the explanation and you know when uh, when all of a sudden legal ID fires off and the news comes on I'd hate to be right in the middle of actually getting into the explanation of it so we can certainly do okay, that I'm gonna up. hold on to this phone here and then I'll just uh, kind of have a little fantasy in my mind about wherever I want to and uh, when I hear your voice again I will respond absolutely that sounds great <laughs> okay so uh, we will be right back into the discussion coming up in just a few moments with our guest John Sedman. In the meantime, uh, certainly go and check out the book. Again, it is called H.P. Lovecraft and the Black Magical Tradition, The Master of Horror's Influence on Modern Occultism. And you can get it pretty much wherever books are found. If you go online and you search for uh, the book on wherever you get books, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, all those sites, you will find all of those. You can also check out his blog, and uh, you can check out his Facebook page as well if you want to follow along with John and, and join up on his social media and follow along with him there uh, during the break. Definitely go and check that out. Uh, also during the break, if you want to get tickets for our upcoming event, Lizzie's March to Murder is happening March 4th at Lizzie Boyd and Bed and Breakfast. We will be investigating the Lizzie Borden house once again coming up on March 4th. I think we have like five or six tickets left. And the tickets have been going pretty quickly. Usually tickets for a Lizzie Borden event sell out like in a day or two. Uh, because of the holidays, I think, you know, this this one's taken a few more days than usual to sell out. So that means there's still some tickets available. And if you want to get involved, just go to SpookySouthCoast.com, click on the events there, click on the little calendar. You'll be able to get your tickets to Lizzie's March to Murder. Uh, again, there's only like five or six left. Once they're sold out, we'll start offering up the rooms uh, at a very, very deep discount. 
based on the order of tickets sold, and you can purchase a reading with Stephanie Burke that night as well. But uh, it's going to be the usual fun that we have at Lizzie Boyden's, you know, just walking around, conjuring up spirits and right. possibly demons. <laughs> you know. Just a couple. Yeah, just all right. just all that fun stuff. The huge. Yeah, no big deal. And we'll have awesome pizza from Vizzoni's down the street, so... We'll it make sure so we good. get the Cherise pizza. So good pizza. So uh, that, that's worth the, the ticket price right there. It's just to get the pizza. But uh, you can get your tickets by going to SpookySouthCoast.com. Again, as I mentioned, there's only like five or six left. So they probably will be gone uh, in the next week or so. They make a great Christmas gift. We don't actually send physical tickets out because of the insurance needed, if people can copy them and lose them and all kinds of stuff. So we deal with like putting people on a master list. But if you want to buy the tickets as a gift for somebody for the holidays and you need something from us, we will supply you with something that will make it so you have something to wrap up or maybe we can even make you a video or something. So we'll be back with more Spooky South Coast in just a bit. Along with the silent assassin, Matt Costa, science advisor, Matt Moniz, and Stephanie Burke are both off tonight. But uh, we are joined by our guest, John L. Stedman. Uh, you can check him out on Twitter, at John L. Stedman Author. And uh, we are talking with him about his new book, H.P. Lovecraft and the Black Magical Tradition. It is available now everywhere that books and ebooks are sold. And uh, I just also put out on Facebook a link to his Facebook page if you want to follow along with him there as well uh we're going to jump right back into the discussion with him and just a reminder if you want to call in at any point during the show 508-996-0500-877-996-1420 i know there's a lot of lovecraft fans out there listening and they are also watching and chatting in the chat room which you can check out right on our YouTube page or on SpookySouthCoast.com or via the Spooky South Coast Android app that you can download for free right now. And the, the iOS version is, is forthcoming very soon, and you'll be able to get it that way as well. So should we – let's just put out the – anybody have an old iPad or anything that you want to donate <laughs> to the show? Let's donate it. Yeah, we could use it because uh, that's we don't have an Apple device that we can use for, for the yeah, – We needed to, yeah, test it. Right. So – the only one of us that Moniz has an Apple device, but it's a work phone, mm-hmm. so we can't mess around with that. And Stephanie doesn't want you to see all of her personal messages and all of her. Uh, right. Well, hers is photos. I, I guess a, a business phone as well. Well, I guess, but it's hers. Right. So I mean, she owns it. Yeah. It's not like Moniz; it's owned by his employer. Business, so. so I think she's more worried about you seeing all the other stuff that's on there. Hmm. Like what? Like all the weird one one sided psychic conversations. <laughs> yeah. 
Well, no, I mean, people reach out to her. That she deals with people that have very personal issues. Right. So she doesn't want you to, like, you know, be using her phone to, to test out an app, and all of a sudden somebody sends something very personal that they need her help with, you know? She, she has to protect her client's confidentiality. Right, right. It's almost we, like a doctor. Right. We need something that we can totally screw around with. So if somebody wants to, you know, donate an iPad, we'll, we'll even give it back, I guess, at some point, <laughs> if you want. Uh, we're, not, we're not looking for anything new. After we beat your uh, highest score in Flappy Bird. There you go. Like a year ago. I still play. Uh, I still play. That that's uh, that's all I used. Uh, that's all I did on, when I was on the Paranormal Cruise last year. Maybe, because I maybe didn't have I should, internet, so I just played Flappy Bird. Maybe I should make like a ghost version of that. Huh? You totally should. Yeah? I like it. Somebody else probably stole the idea. That's probably, fine because yep. I'd rather play it than make <laughs> it. So if somebody else wants to do it, that's fine. All right. Well, let's get right back into the discussion with our guest tonight, John L. Stedman, and uh, you can again call in five zero eight nine nine six zero five hundred. 877-996-1420 if you have any questions for John. But uh, I think the, the first question we should ask uh, in this hour, John, is let's get into the discussion about magic and about the difference between uh, the the white and the black magic that, you know, we hear a lot of this stuff in, in pop culture, but I don't think people really have a firm grasp on the differences between the two. Yeah, I talk about that in the first chapter. In the first chapter, I actually have to clarify what magic is, so I give a definition of it, and then I uh, talk about the difference between white and black magic, and then I talk about the various elements of magical practice. I define magic as basically being the use of language, gestures, symbolic objects, and stylized settings to uh, achieve contact with what I call extraterrestrial entities, and that would include the uh, places where these entities exist also. That's a very conservative definition, by the way, and I can get into the particulars of it later. But uh, when it comes to black and white magic, a lot of people think that the black magic is evil and that white magic is good. But it really doesn't have anything to do with that. Uh, If you want to determine whether something is evil, a person or an action is evil, it depends on the person's behavior. You have to judge it in terms of behavior and effects. So a person could actually be a black magician, but he's not necessarily an evil magician if he's an ethical kind of a person. And then, of course, conversely, you could be a, a white magician, but you could also be a very ethically challenged person, and then you would be an evil person. Uh, the way I define black magic is uh, magic that you're using primarily to gain knowledge and power. And when I say knowledge and power, I mean good knowledge, uh, good power. Mm-hmm. You know, knowledge of your world, your your place in the world, your relationship to the universe, maybe. And um, power meaning uh, power in accordance with natural laws and natural functions. So there's nothing bad about either one of those. Uh, on the other hand, a white magician is a magician that's primarily interested in spiritual perfection. In other words, they're trying to transform themselves in some way from being a human into being a god. Now, because of that definition, you'll, uh, there'll be some startling, um, there'll be some startling observations. Like one, a lot of people think Aleister Crowley, for instance. Aleister Crowley is a very unethical person. Okay, he styled himself as a, a, a black magician, a saintness. He called himself the wickedest man in the world, and that kind of held for a long time until a more wicked man than him came along, Adolf Hitler. And uh, then Crowley was kind of forgotten after that point. But he was a very bad person. He uh, loved people. He was very cruel. 
never paid any child support for the children he fired, treated women so bad that many of his former lovers or wives actually ended up alcoholics or in some of them insane or suicidal. So he was a very unethical man, but yet he was a white magician. His whole life was centered around uh, transforming himself into a, from a human being into a god. So here is an example of an evil white magician. And then uh, there are, are, are so-called black magicians that are very ethical. I would argue that most of these black magical systems that we have in Operation T, and that includes the Church of Satan, by the way, I would argue that these are thoroughly ethical organizations. If you actually study what the Church of Satan is doing, they're not in, engaged in any kind of unethical activities. They, they kind of elevate the more earthly or natural powers of mankind, and they kind of personify different aspects of the human being by using categories like Satan or Lucifer or Belial or Beelzebub. But they're not unethical people. They have a very strong ethical system. See, that's and, what uh, the Wiccan religion, I would argue, as well as a black magical organization. That's and what they're very ethical me, as well. So uh, this black and white thing is actually not very relevant, I don't think, in, in terms of uh, uh, evil or good. I think that evil and good are such human concepts, and, and they're really just defined by our, by our own social mores more than anything else, because I don't think that there is uh, existing in nature such a thing, as, and we've argued about this on the show in the past, there, that there is such a thing as good and evil. It's all just our lens and our perception of what it is that we're viewing, because if you look at some of these truly evil people that are out there, what we would call an evil person who does evil deeds in their own mind, they think that they're doing good, and that they're, you know, that their own twisted view is that they're doing something positive for the world and so how can we say that you know we're right and they're wrong because it's really just based on how we feel collectively more than anything else so uh, i don't know how you can work in magic having an intent toward good and evil when it it all depends on what it is that you believe i i like your definition better of you know one is more toward the spirit and one is more toward kind of um earthly based power and 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 those that definition works a lot better for me than the idea of you know i'm using this for for evil and nefarious purposes because one person's evil is another person's good yeah, but the interesting thing about what you said there, though, you can't really determine whether something's evil or good based on philosophy, because like you said, like a person might think they're actually doing good, but they're doing evil, and that's kind of like their philosophical view of things, and uh, we could say it's twisted, but from their standpoint, it's not twisted, so we really can't determine if something's evil or good. These terms are very difficult to define, anyhow. A quantum physicist would say that there's a perfect example of some of two ideas that you cannot actually hold in your mind simultaneously. They can't be defined in terms of each other, but leaving the quantum physicist aside here, we have to make some kind of determination about what's good or evil from a practical standpoint. And so what we do is we judge on behavior and effects. You know, like somebody like Adolf Hitler, he might have thought he was pur purging uh, his culture of uh, things that were actually dragging it down, but he, he was making it more pure. So he might have thought that he was on some kind of mission that was good, but what we do in that kind of case, we don't confront him on a philosophical level because you just can't win an argument on that right, on those kind of level because they're too intangible. What you do is you just look at the effects. And you have to have some very clear uh, laws and stipulations in place about those effects. Like he was causing harm to people. He was killing innocent people. And uh, judged on that basis alone, 
you would have to classify him as evil, and then that has to be corrected, that has to be stopped. A Catholic priest, for instance, that molests little children, you know, now he's allied himself with a very strong white magical organization, a Holy Roman Catholic Church, but if he's molesting children, again, he's doing behavior and effects that are harming other people. And as a result, uh, we have to judge it on that basis. We can't judge it philosophically. We can only judge it in terms of effects, and we need very clear language when it comes to judging those effects. Well, I mean, now that we have some sort of an idea of, of, of the concepts of black and white magic, would you say then that Lovecraft's work, you know, and obviously I would think you would feel this way from, from the, just from the title of the book alone, but it, it yeah. dwells more toward the black magical tradition. Entirely. You know, Lovecraft, like we say, he's an atheist, so he didn't really believe in spiritual perfection. His magicians were interested in knowledge and power. And when you look at his stories, uh, uh, a lot of his uh, black magical practitioners are, in fact, evil because they engage in kind of evil actions. But some of them aren't either. Like in one of his earlier stories, I don't know if you've read this one or not, uh, Lovecraft considered his finest story. It was written in 1931, uh, 1921, The Music of Eric Zahn. uh, In that story, he's got an old blind man that's actually contacting extraterrestrial entities for knowledge and power, basically. And he was a thoroughly ethical person, not harming anybody. He was using as his magical, symbolic object his uh, violin, and then he was using his language, his, uh, his playing, his playing of music and the gestures. And so he was actually doing standard magical rituals, and he was getting in touch with extraterrestrial entities, but he was a thoroughly ethical person. And then other magicians in Lovecraft's pantheon, like uh, Charles uh, or uh, Joseph Kerwin in the uh, case of Charles Dexter Ward, he was doing all sorts of unethical things. I mean, he was also trying to contact extraterrestrial entities, but uh, he was also enslaving people. He was killing people. He was using, uh, he was digging up corpses and using assaults to communicate. So he's doing a lot of unethical things. So you kind of have to classify him as being an evil person. But see, we make the judgment based on their behavior and their, their effects, not on what they're actually trying to do. Both magical practitioners, Eric Zahn and Joseph Curran, were actually black magical practitioners engaged in trying to discover knowledge and power. So at that level... They're, they're equated in a certain sense. But isn't kind of isn't the quest for that knowledge, though, I mean, obviously, if you don't believe in the idea of a spiritual self, then you're not trying to perfect it, but that, that power, that knowledge would actually help them become a more perfect being by having that knowledge. You know, you're trying to tap into the secrets of the universe, essentially, and kind of go beyond just what we feel we can learn here on this plane of existence, and by doing so, you're going to advance your, your sense of self, uh, even if it's not a spiritual sense, there's still whatever it is, whatever consciousness you have is going to become more advanced as a result of it. Well, I agree with that. Like, the thing that I leave out in my definition of magic, I don't really tell where the sources of magical power come from, and I kind of let the reader kind of draw between the lines. And quite frankly, I know you got an author on your staff, too, Chris. Uh, As he knows, you know, when you get a book published, you have to kind of cut things out of it. I had to cut, I had a very long exposition in the chapter one about the cause of magical power. I, I look at uh, whether your extraterrestrial entities are actual entities or whether they're just uh, symbols of things inside yourself or whether they're, uh, whether they're kind of uh, entities living in alternate dimensions. So I, I actually don't really answer that question, you know, but uh, gosh, I'm getting so off track, I almost 
forgot the, the point that I'm, I'm making. Uh, do the question again. I want to answer it directly. No, because this is this is what I love. I love having the the conversation that comes as a result of this. See, I hate interviewing people, and I love just talking with people, and that's what we try to do. So we never know exactly where the conversation is going to go. But uh, well, I got off track there. I, you had a really good question. I want to answer it specifically right now. So what was that question again? Well, I was asking kind of uh, based on the idea of of that as you gain more knowledge and you you gain more power uh, through the the black magic, you're getting a a, a greater sense of self and a a greater definition of yourself by doing so. So in a a way, it does have spiritual growth to it, even though if you don't believe in the idea of a spiritual being, you're still becoming a more perfect version of yourself by gaining this knowledge and gaining this power. Yeah, I would agree with that fully. You know, I mean, no matter what's happening, and it's very hard to actually quantify what's happening when you do a magic ritual, but any of these practices whatsoever are going to make you a better human being because you're kind of utilizing uh, very powerful forces. If nothing else, you're utilizing your imagination, so you're being more creative, you know. But whether you're actually changing yourself, like Crowley believed that he was actually evolving into a higher type of human by he called it contact with his holy guardian angel and you were becoming like your higher self your true self a lot of religious people live a very exemplary life and they feel that they're getting closer and closer to god in a state of grace and then when they die they'll take that final step and actually become a good spiritual being fit to deal with the angels and to ascend to heaven you know so whatever you believe it's kind of immaterial if you're doing practices that kind of ennoble you in a certain way it's going to make you a better person and so there's no downside to it at all there's nothing evil about it at all i mean even dealing with uh uh, supposedly darker kinds of entities are not really evil entities they're just different types of entities and our imperfect human understanding labels them as being dark or light but intercourse with beings like that can't help but have a positive effect a lot of people talk about like the theory of global warming this is going to be kind of an odd analogy but uh, whether or not you accept the fact of global warming as an actual theory that in other words the greenhouse gases are actually causing our atmosphere and our earth to deteriorate it, it doesn't really matter if you believe that or not what a person should do is still be good to the environment sure, take yeah. care of the environment cut down pollution because that's going to help the environment whether or not you hold the theory that it's actually hurting the environment in any kind of real sense you know so it's going to be a positive thing you don't have to believe in global warming in order to uh, improve the environment. And again, you don't have to believe in gods or goddesses or any ontological reality of the entities you're dealing with to actually become a better person by magical practice. See, I really, really want to make a, an analogy right now to the television show Westworld, but I'm going to hold back because my co-host Matt Costa hasn't seen it yet and he wants to watch it, so I don't want to get too much into. Uh, no, I don't you want know, to be a spoiler. Yeah, I don't want to give away spoilers. But the you know the idea, the concept of that show is that there are these created beings that inhabit the Westworld park that are given kind of a script that they have to follow, and they slowly are starting to become self-aware. And I think that that's kind of similar to what you're describing you know the human beings we essentially live in a state of you know following a script of what our lives should be but that if you can look past that and grow past that and become self-aware i think almost like the power that you can gain is to some degree inherent you know it's it's in you already that you just have to pull away some of that veil and be able to realize that you can tap into it to be able to grow as a person on your own without even having to bring in those extraterrestrial forces 
Yeah, I I actually tend to, uh, the more that I've been working, I, I in this book I kind of touch upon it a little bit. My second book, it's called H.P. Lovecraft's Magical Persona and the Cthulhu Mythos, and that's kind of like a more extended study of Lovecraft's concept of the magical persona, and I show some of the literary antecedents to that, and I show how that concept of the magical persona is projected out into uh, other mythos literature and other writers as well. And what I'm trying to, what I'm, I'm slowly working into is kind of like a quantum view of magic, where we get rid of things like the astral bias or the astral plane or the different levels of being, and we look at a magical act as kind of like in a quantum effect. And that's a very interesting thing, you said, because uh, according to the quantum physicists, they tend to view the whole uh, observation and measure measurement of things as being a problem, basically, because it kind of disrupts the uh, steady flow of amplitudes that quantum physics postulates. And so what ha- happens ultimately with quantum physics is that they don't, they, they actually don't understand how a person can observe and choose a certain outcome. They don't understand that at all because that kind of goes against the theory. And they usually reduce to uh, two possibilities, you know, that you actually don't observe anything or that quantum physics is nonsense. And quantum physics certainly isn't nonsense because we can use it to measure things at the subatomic level. And it's a lot more accurate than any other kind of Newtonian measurements. But the, the thing about we never really actually observe anything, I think, is a very telling point. And Lovecraft touches on that. What he's saying is that reality is incommensurable. And if you look at his definitions, particularly in a story like The Dreams in the Witch House, which he wrote in, uh, in um, 1932, he actually presents a very quantum view of reality and what he's claiming in there is that what we see is what we've been conditioned to see. And that there's a reality behind that. And we have to find some way to actually experience or see that reality. And it requires, like, different kinds of observations, different kinds of measurements. And I would argue that in order to actually see beyond that veil or behind that veil, so to speak, we need to have some technique for doing that. And science has no technique for that. Not yet, anyhow. But magic does. And what's interesting about magic, and, and you, you talk about this in the book, and, and you've touched upon it here in the conversation a bit, is that even though you know, you're dealing with something in the works of Lovecraft that are fictional and, and, and coming from the mind of Howard Phillips Lovecraft, you know, this, this is something that is uh, his reality that he's created and that people who practice magic have been, been able to tap into. You know, you are actually bringing the great old ones into some of your magical practicing. Oh, yeah. I mean, they're a part of it. You know, I've I've written a series of rituals and deal with them. And what I do when I do a ritual, like say that I do an evocation, a Cthulhu or an invocation, what I'm trying to do is actually gain knowledge of what what this is, is. and still, you know, I don't know if, if, if there's still that barrier that makes it incommensurable, but I get closer and closer to understanding it. And I, I keep, I awaken powers in me and skills in me, like any kind of skill. The more you do it, like if you do mathematics, right? The more you do algebraic equations, you get better and better at And your mind gets sharper and more toned. And then your creativity engages in it, too. So that's what magic does, you know, like we were talking before. You know, it actually has nothing but a positive effect, no matter what kind of results you get. But I use it primarily for knowledge and only occasionally for power. And what I mean for power, like making some kind of outcome happen in the physical world. But what I've found from past experiences, the more you do this kind of thing, you don't really have to use it for any 
uh, lower purposes like that because the universe is on your side, you know, to take care of that things. I find like when I go into a haunted house, you've got like paranormal listeners here. I find that everything in the, in the haunted house behaves itself when I come in because of my mind, the way my mind is trained, you know. So, uh, and other people can go in there and if their mind's not trained that way, they'll see all sorts of stuff. And a lot of times what they see is just something that they've actually created in their own mind, and they're kind of grasping to understand there's something there they don't understand, so they put things on. They, oh, this is a demon, or this is actually the spirit of a dead person, my Uncle Frank or whatever. They'll kind of project things on there because they really don't know what they're seeing, and they got no way to find out what they're seeing. Well, magic allows a person to get a little bit more sharper and stronger and to actually accomplish that purpose. Is it actually uh, is it a touch of magic as well to be able to discern when you go into a place like that what it is that you're dealing with? You know, I, we deal with obviously, you know, having a, a co-host uh, and a friend who is a psychic medium. You know, she can walk into a room and she knows what spirit she's dealing with, and she can tell to some degree if it is something that you know existed in human form or if it's something that is a creation of people who have been going there and putting out the thought and creating this thing out of their own thought you know she has that ability of discernment to some degree will magic also help people be able to uh, utilize that so that you can make a connection to those who are you know gone beyond past the mortal coil well if that's your interpretation you certainly can do that i would argue that uh what you can do is based on the power of your mind and how well developed it is, and a lot of times on the things that are in your mind, too. If she goes into the haunted house and she really believes that she's in touch with a spirit like a demon or something, and she's got it all mapped out and she knows how to handle it, that's exactly what's happening to her. What she's done is what, like the quantum physicists would say, is she's made a selection. She's made an observation. And once she's done that, uh, the quantum physicists always say, say also she's reduced... It's called reduction of amplitudes or reduction of quantum states. And what that means is the other alternatives, other interpretations, what's happening there, they immediately fall down and disappear. And the physicists would say that, that they never existed in the first place. So from her standpoint, she's doing exactly what she thinks she's doing, right? A magician might go in there and be approaching it from a different standpoint where it's not really what she says it is at all, but it's something else. And then that magician will make an observation, and then he or she is doing exactly what she's doing, but from a different perspective, and so they're getting justification for that as well. Now, there's nothing wrong with either one of these, but I would argue that reality is still incommensurable, that we really, really don't know what that is. Something's there, definitely, in that haunted house something that's measurable and something that's observable. But whatever that is behind our own human-centric view, I don't know. You know, I, there's no way to quantify that to actually tell for sure whether this is, I hate to use the word truth, but whether it's true or not. Well, you know, you mentioned that there, you see that the, gaining this knowledge through magic, that there is no real downside to it. But I guess is it kind of a downside to... At some point, you're going to separate yourself from those who have not gained that knowledge. And at some point, you're going to kind of look at those who haven't reached the same level of awareness that you have as being, you know, walking around in the dark type of scenario. 
do, do you get any kind of empathy along with the gaining of this knowledge where you can kind of look back and feel bad for these people? Because I would be worried that as, uh, as I start to become more aware uh, of something, I look at those who are ignorant and I, I get angry at their ignorance. And I, I, I get upset with the fact that they haven't reached the same level of awareness that I have. Or does the gaining of this knowledge just kind of make it so that you don't feel that animosity toward them for not being along the same journey as you are? I think that last statement you made is actually pretty accurate because I never get angry. I don't even label ignorance, okay? I don't label as ignorance. There's human beings out there. I always respect human beings, okay, no matter what they're doing. And uh, they maybe they see nothing at all. Like I got a real nice endorsement from S.T. Josie. He's actually the number one Lovecraft scholar in the world. And he gave me a nice endorsement. He had to probably grit his teeth to do it because he's an atheist. He doesn't like any, the, a lot of the things I speculate in this book, he would have to grit his teeth in order to even read the stuff. But he was able to stand back and be objective and just give me an endorsement based upon that. Now, if Mr. Josie went into a magical circle and I could pick a couple other atheists and put him in there, and they did the rituals, you know, and I would argue that probably 99% of the time, and we can never say for sure because of the probabilistic nature of things, but I would say it was probably 99.9% sure that nothing would happen. They would get no results at all. And then they would say there's no such thing. There's no such thing as magic. There's no such thing as gods and goddesses. And they really believe that. And do you know what? At that, I don't even like to say at that level. These are human beings. They're intelligent human beings. They made an assessment based upon their own abilities. And that's fine. I respect that. Okay, it doesn't bother me. I'm not going to view them, kind of pity them, or view them as not being... Uh, being being lesser people or somebody that just hasn't seen it like their children or something. I don't view them that way. I view them as fully intelligent, responsible human beings who have made a decision. It's a decision that I don't agree with, but I'm not going to go any farther than that. You know, I'm a college professor, right? I know some college professors that tend to look down on people like a person that's working at McDonald's or something, right? Mm -hmm. They're not utilizing their full potential. And then they'll get that smug look on their face like this person's not as good of a human being as me, uh, and they should be doing more with themselves. And what they're implying, of course, that I'm superior, I'm better than them. That is not the proper way to look at a situation like that. That's not the proper way. It's a human being. It's worthy of respect. If the human being isn't uh, seeing things the way you see them, you know, you just keep doing your thing. You know, and maybe they'll come around. Maybe they won't. They can't control that. You certainly shouldn't worry about that. You know, it's kind of there's 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 a a bit of a, a modern version of like an Aesop's fable about that, where uh, you know, there's a college professor and. He's talking to a, one of his students, and he says, you know, your, your exceptionally bright genius level intelligence and analysis of the material that we're covering, yet you work at a fast food place. You know, why are you limiting yourself to uh, just having to work in a fast food place and, and, and putting such a, an arrest on your great intellect? And, and the student's response was, well, I work at a fast food place so that while I'm out there working and making a living, I don't have to waste my brain at what it is that I'm doing that I have to do. And the rest of the time, I'm free to use my mind for the things that I actually want to learn about and explore. So, you know, it, it, there's, there's two different ways of looking at that. And, uh, and unfortunately, I feel like a lot of people don't, don't view it that way. Well, that's not very nice. I tell my own students, you know, I say the reason why they're sitting in those chairs is because they probably want to utilize their talents and get a little bit more out of life, at least from a materialistic or tangible way. 
But I tell them, quite frankly, that I don't think anybody should feel superior to somebody else. And I tell them, you know, I, I, I mean, I like it. I like the fact there might be somebody out there that's dedicating their life to making the best damn quarter pounder in the world, right? Because I like quarter pounders. No, I never. like going into McDonald's. And I'm really happy to know that the person that made that quarter pounder is willing to give all the best that they have to make that quarter pounder. And I respect them for that. I would also respect them if they decide they want a little bit more out of life, but I don't push it with that. I don't look down on it. Usually when you reach a, a higher level of development, you're not like trying to dominate people or think that you're superior to them. You usually understand more than ever that all these people have a place in the universe, and they're doing their will. Crowley said, do what thou wilt shall be the whole of the law, right? The person's making the best damn quarter pounder in the world is doing their will. If they really want to do that, if they really believe that, and they're in harmony with the universe, just like I am. So there's really no difference between us. You know, they're as worthy of respect as I am. Do you think that that's where, where the quest for magic fails some people, uh, people who are not able to actually achieve results uh, from trying to practice magic because they have the wrong intent behind it, because they're looking to just separate themselves and make themselves better than others and, and to find a way to subjugate those around them? Well, that kind of attitude always fails. I would consider that just a mistaken perception. I don't really believe like the way... Uh, some people believe that good and evil are like two equal forces and they're at war with each other. I would put evil as not really a force at all. I view evil as just a mistake in perception or a misconception. Uh, until a manifest, uh, philosophically, I think it's a mistake or a misconception. If you actually philosophically want to be a supernatural means to dominate people, then that's a flaw. I would argue that's a flaw in your philosophy. When it actually manifests in the form of like behavior or actions, then we got a problem when it goes against protection of all people and stuff. But I think if a person goes to magic with the intention of dominating or controlling people, I think that's actually a flaw. It's actually a philosophical flaw and a character flaw. And uh, the reason why they fail is precisely because of that. Hmm. Well, I, I I do find it fascinating that uh, that this this power can be gained and that it it can be acquired and then it can be realized and utilized in life to kind of open someone's eyes a little bit more to the forces around them. But I think that there's also all kinds of little low level ways of that happening too. And and in discussing the paranormal, I think that every time somebody has an interaction with something that they can't explain, whether it be maybe a ghost encounter or encountering a, a being that they didn't know existed, like like an alien being or or a cryptid being, that it opens up their eyes and it and it opens up a little bit more. And these little bits of awakening are helping their own consciousness grow. Is that kind of like kind of planting the I seeds? I believe that entirely. I believe that entirely. And I found that people that close themselves off for growth like that, I find that they're, and I don't like to use value-laden terms, but I, I find them to be very diminished, you know, in terms of like their potential. They're diminished. Sometimes they're very bitter people. I've known a few people that were actually straight atheists. And I found from uh, talking to them or knowing them, that not only did they not believe in, in gods or goddesses, but they didn't really believe in much of anything at all. And a belief in things, belief in the improbable or facing the improbable, uh, I think it ennobles a person. It makes them a better person, a more creative person, a, a more developed person. You know? So uh, I don't think you should do anything that limits you. And you should be able to look at things clearly and determine 
the outcomes of what you're doing. Like a lot of people say, well, we'll take drugs or we'll, we'll abuse alcohol or we'll, do, we'll sacrifice little babies to achieve magical results. Those are uh, not the right direction to go. That kind of ethical behavior is not the direction to go. So I think you're very right about that. A person that experiences a ghost, it might make him more creative. They might write a story about it. It'll make him think about things they hadn't thought about. It can't help but have a positive effect on that individual. Now, you had mentioned this, uh, you know, in talking about the the quest for enlightenment and, and in practicing magic and incorporating Lovecraft into that, you know, obviously uh, there's a lot of positive that comes as a result of this, but you had also referenced earlier in the conversation, too, that one of the great controversies about Lovecraft and his writing are some of the ways that he viewed uh, race and, and, and class structure, that he seemed to have, you know, some predisposition toward prejudices in those regard. Oh, yeah, he, he sure did. You know, he sure did. And that bothers a lot of people. It was a very thorny issue, by the way. If you read Lovecraft's letters and the record conversations with him, he was a racist. There's no way of getting around mm-hmm. it. You know, and it's damaged his reputation as well because of that. But he actually did not like uh, most ethnic groups. And it got even more intense, like when he went to New York, he actually was planning on living in New York. He married Sonia Green, and he was going to live there, and he just couldn't stand it. Uh, The different races, he didn't like Jews, Italians, Asians. He definitely didn't like African Americans. And uh, it's an issue that a lot of scholars and a lot of Lovecraft's friends during his lifetime actually found very thorny. And they would struggle over it. A lot of times they'd whitewash that. Like a biographer would say, well, Lovecraft really didn't hate these people. He just didn't know them very well. And uh, and he was talking more abstractly than uh, directly. And then some people cite the fact that Sonia Green, his wife, was actually a Jew. And that proves to them, it doesn't prove it to me, but it proves it to them that Lovecraft was actually willing to accept different races. But you just can't get around it. You just can't get around it. Like uh, Sonia Green, he could tolerate her even though she was a Jew because she looked like him. She, uh, you know, she quacked and walked like a duck, so to speak. You know, if it quacks and walks like a duck, it's a duck, right? So he was able to overlook it because she looked like that. He would not have married an African-American woman or a Polish woman or an Asian woman. He was actually a very strenuous racist, and that bothers a lot of people. Now, I'm capable of of, uh, divorcing myself from that aspect of Lovecraft's personality and his emotions and then from the vast contributions he's done uh, mentally and intellectually. But you just can't get around the racism, and you can't whitewash it. You have to kind of look at it directly, and then you have to just say, well, he was... I can't do anything about it. I wish he wasn't like that, but uh, what can I do about that? You know, there's absolutely nothing I can do. Certainly, my support of Lovecraft does not include my support of those kind of things, but I'm certainly not going to try and whitewash him. And if somebody is bothered by that, then I accept that. Lovecraft was up for a big award. I forget what it was. He had a bust of him, and he was going to get a big award, and then they decided he was too racist, and then they kind of took him out of the running. And S.D. Josie, of course, got all upset by that. He collected the bust and kind of added it to his personal collection. And he was actually making outrageous claims like he's not going to ever accept an award for his writings because they didn't accept Lovecraft. That's pure nonsense. You know, I mean, uh, there are some people that can't put that divorce, they can't divorce themselves from that aspect of Lovecraft. And if they can't do that, 
I respect that opinion entirely. You know, it doesn't bother me in the least. And Lovecraft has only himself to blame for that, if you want you know, my honest opinion. Well, and, and that's true, but I, I think, uh, you know, a lot of people have tried to explain it away by saying it's it's the nature of the the society that you grew up in, gr- you know, growing up in, in an upper-class New England atmosphere, that the racism might have been more cultural than it was oh, you know, biological. Oh, that's not. That's not, you know what Lovecraft really hated about all those mongrel hordes, as he liked to call them? Well, he was really attached to, like, the old colonial period, and he saw this as a threat to him. He saw these different races moving in, and he could never uh, look at them as being actual human beings with emotions and needs and with the same kind of qualities that he has. He could never stand above and see them that way, but he saw they were actually diminishing the old ways. You know, the old colonial ways. They were moving into neighborhoods. They were kind of changing the texture of the neighborhoods. They were, the, the very fact they talked different, looked different. They were bringing things down in his estimation. And he hated to see it. He viewed it as like a decline of Western civilization. And he was very serious about that. And he really viewed that. He could see some neighborhoods changing in Providence, Rhode Island. In New York, he could see it firsthand. And he hated the fact that Western culture was being damaged or being diminished. And some people justify that. They say, well, he didn't really hate the races, but he just hated seeing culture go by. But I'm not going to give him a, a get-out-of-jail card on this one because during his period of time, he was born like in 1890. He died in uh, 1937. Uh, during that period of time, the races were being accepted. Uh, legal aliens were being accepted in those cultures. And as far back as like the 1830s, when racism was even more pronounced in society, there were always people that had enough uh, common sense and free thinking to stand above that. Like in the uh, 1830s, Ralph Waldo Emerson said blacks and whites are equal, and we should recognize that. And the majority of people around him, Emerson was a great transcendentalist, people like Nathaniel Hawthorne, for instance, could never accept that fact. You know, so that's no excuse just because uh, there was predominant cultural uh, bias or prejudice against black. That's no excuse for him doing that. Absolutely none. Is, is there any possibility then that some of these, you know, these non-human beings that he wrote about in some of his stories could be allegorical to the way that he felt about other cultures and other races? Well, you know what's funny about that? Lovecraft was as much of a hypocrite as anybody else. And in the story like The Shadow Out of Time, he presents a totally alien culture. I mean, these are big rugos cone kind of creatures with tentacles and different appendages and little ciliated things on the bottom. They were gigantic, and they bore no resemblance to anything human whatsoever. And yet, in the story, he so has such an extreme respect for this culture. I mean, this culture has actually found a way to actually supplant minds. So what they do, they'd send their minds into the future of the past, and they would exchange minds. And then the other person they exchanged would go back to their uh, civilization, and they would uh, had access to these writing materials, and they would write a history of their own time during a seven-year period. And then the other one would be just gathering information about the culture they had been projected into. And what the uh, great race was doing was actually creating this vast library that was preserving all the culture of the whole universe by this kind of mental projection they were doing, right? And they had a very highly developed culture, a very highly developed uh, society. And Lovecraft, at some point in that story, he says, whatever else you call these people, they were men. Now, he called these monsters. They looked like monsters. Uh, He called them men. And his definition of what a human being was was somebody that wanted to preserve the culture, somebody that wanted to further 
human knowledge and go past the, uh, the boundaries of human knowledge. And so he actually viewed any culture that did that to be a human culture. And this is what he didn't like about what he was seeing in, in New York, because he viewed those cultures as being not human. And that's kind of hypocritical, isn't it? Because he was willing to go into a fictional culture and create himself and label those entities as human, and yet he had cultures uh, like the Jews or the Italians right in front of him, and he was yet unwilling to, on the empirical plane, uh, try and delve into that culture and see the humanity in there either. So Lovecraft was kind of a hypocrite in that regard. Or maybe he was just trying to work out some of his own you know, subconscious issues through his writing. Maybe, I mean, maybe that was kind of his, his catharsis for trying to deal with the attitudes that he felt. Yeah, maybe, but he never got there. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, when you look at Lovecraft, it's the same thing. You know, he never changed any of those views. He never never changed them at all. It didn't look like he was actually softening or growing toward any kind of recognition of that at all. Uh, so, you know, I don't know. Maybe he was. And you can make an argument. People that like to read Lovecraft like in a Freudian way, uh, they'll view his views of women as being like they show they feared women or viewed women as allied with chaos or the darker sides of culture. Uh, you can make those kind of interpretations, but like I said before, Lovecraft is such a vast figure that you can make those interpretations. You can make the Christian interpretations. You can make the magical interpretations, the philosophical, whatever you do. Lovecraft is still above all that. You can't really touch that. And he's as implacable as reality itself. is. That's one of the things I like so much about him. Well, I think probably the most fascinating aspect about him, at least for me, as somebody who hasn't really delved into his life as much as you have, but one thing that I, always stands out to me as as kind of the mark of of what he's left behind is all of those who have been influenced by him. And for a guy who was not appreciated in his own time and celebrated in his own time, if he could be alive today and see the influence that he's had on people like, you know, we mentioned Stephen King, but also Clive Barker, uh, John Carpenter, Guillermo del Toro, H.R. Geiger, people who mentioned directly being influenced by Lovecraft and seeing the way that they've gone into influ- gone on to influence people even more, I think from a from a literary standpoint, he would be inspired by that. But even more so, you know, people such as yourself who have taken that beyond and used his stories and used his creations to bring more purpose into their life overall. I, I just think that uh, he would just be even more fascinated with the way that he's had a lasting impact well beyond just anything in the publishing world. Oh, yeah, he would be amused, you know. He would be amused at how his Necronomicons, all these different Necronomicons, he'd be amused at his kind of influence on people. And uh, when he actually encountered these things in his lifetime, he he found that very amusing, too. I'll tell you one thing, he'd be a lot richer. (laughs) I mean, he'd be very, very rich right now. He would have residuals from all the use of his entities and stuff. He'd be uh, living a a lot better than he did in his own time. But I think he'd be kind of... Slightly surprised, a little surprised, a little bit shocked, maybe, but he would be very amused at what was happening. He would not be very happy about the direction Western culture has taken. Of course, the whole concept that we see in the news about the illegal aliens and terrorism and stuff, he would actually view all that, I think, as a justification of his belief in that uh, alien cultures being allowed into the country actually tend to diminish or actually threaten the uh, preservation of uh, the American culture, and he would actually see confirmations of that, at least by his definition, all around him constantly, so he would not have been pleased by that. 
But I, I do think, though, that uh, as as we've become a culture that becomes, uh, I don't want to say worshipping of, of, of horror and some of these things, but, you know, it's, it's a lot more prevalent in today's society than it might have been a few years ago. You know, it's, it's really starting to uh, work its way into people's mindset. I think a lot of folks are going to go back and discover Lovecraft for the first time. And now with books such as yours, they're going to realize that it can go beyond just ha- having a good story that it can actually have a, a profound influence on your life. And I think that that'll be something that will be his everlasting legacy. Yeah, well, this book, I wrote this book primarily for a very specific purpose. I wanted to trace Lovecraft's influence on those black magical systems. You'll notice in the latter half of the book, when I go through the different systems, like the voodoo religion, the Wiccan religion, the chaos magic packs, I actually can show direct connections there. And I wanted to have it all in there because you'd heard... A lot of nonsense. Nobody's actually written a book like this before, but you heard a lot of nonsense about Lovecraft's connection, and some people would make the argument Lovecraft himself was a practicing magician, or Lovecraft was in touch with actual extraterrestrial entities. Peter Lavanda himself claimed that Lovecraft was in touch with uh, uh, Aleister Crowley's holy guardian angel, A.I. Wash. You know? So uh, you hear a lot of those kind of crazy stories, like, or that Lovecraft actually wrote the Necronomicon, things like that. You know, So I wanted to kind of clarify all those misconceptions, actually uh, write kind of a definitive study of that, and I think I've done that. You know, but I've only touched the surface. I've got like t- uh, three other, it's going to be a trilogy. My second one is more like from the literary standpoint. I show like lit- uh, the literary antecedents to Lovecraft's concept of the magical persona. And then I show how he developed that. And I've got some very penetrating literary criticism in there. I have a degree from University of Virginia, and I was actually trained as a literary critic, so I use all those skills in this second book. And then I show how he influenced and continues to influence literature, fantasy, and horror. I even got a section on how he influenced Ray Bradbury's uh, magical persona, which Bradbury called the autumn person. So that's like Lovecraft from more of a literary standpoint. And then in the last book, and I've already written a uh, uh, essay on this, Lovecraft's uh, very strong connection to quantum physics, and that's going to be my third book, you know, so I've only just scratched the surface of Lovecraft's influence on culture in this first one, and I'm going to kind of move slowly away from the magical influence and more into a more a multicultural kind of influence in those other two books, but the topic is very vast, and uh, if Lovecraft's reputation hadn't been saved by August Derleth and kept alive by uh, S.T. Joshi in the 80s, I probably wouldn't have written this book at all. You know, So I'm staying on his shoulders, just like uh, popular culture is. Excellent. Well, we look forward to talking with you more down the line uh, as those books come out and delving more into the topic of Lovecraft. Thank you very much, John Stedman, for joining us tonight. Thank you very much as well. This was a lot of fun. Uh, great conversation and, uh, and looking forward to, to uh, exploring the topic further down the line. Okay, wonderful. Bye-bye. Have a good night. That is John Stedman. He is the author of H.P. Lovecraft and the Black Magical Tradition, the Master of Horror's Influence on Modern Occultism. You can pick it up from Amazon or Barnes & Noble, wherever books or ebooks are sold. You can pick it up for yourself if you would like to pick up a copy. But I highly recommend if you're going to do that, also pick up the works of Lovecraft. And you can get them. It's really easy now to, to find them. A, a lot of... Um, you know, the ebook readers and everything, you can get a lot of his works right there through their online libraries. And it, it, it's worth 
investing in. It's worth, especially if you're listening to this show, and it's the kind of thing that you're into. Uh, you'll be able to not only spend hours reading and learning about Lovecraft and, and the worlds that he created, but also seeing how it directly influenced those who came after him as well. So that does it for this week's show. Next week, in advance of the Christmas holiday, we're going to have the birthday boy on. The resurrected Jesus Christ will be joining us next Saturday night right here on Spooky South Coast. Uh, we will have the phone lines open for you to talk with Jesus, and you'll be able to call in and, and ask questions and, and figure out, we'll try and figure out exactly why this person believes himself to be the resurrected Jesus Christ. So uh, I feel like if he is back with us and, and that's the case, then we, we should probably recognize that it's his birthday. So... Maybe we'll even sing to him. What do you think, Matt? You want to sing to him? Yeah, sure. All right. It's his birthday. Tune in just for that. All right, so uh, that does it for this week. Until next week, we want you all to stay spooktacular.